to describe your last week at work in one word, what would it be? Exhausting, stressful, the last week, good question. If you had to describe your work, period, in one word, what would it be? Fabulous. Fun. Adventure. Exciting. Awesome. Fulfilling. Wonderful. Last question. In one word, what would you describe as the biggest challenge in your workplace? <laughs> I was, uh, I work as a doctor, as you can see, I'm wearing my work attire today, and uh, towards the end of my training, one of uh, my mentors uh, in orthopedic surgery, he, his motto every day when we went to work was, Tuna uh, Umia which means we struggle. And that was his expectation. He wanted us to have that expectation. Is in orthopedics. We struggle. It's tough. Last week, in our four-part series on work that we're in now, this is week three, last week we looked at co-creating with God. We looked at being made in the image of God. We looked at co-laboring with God. And in a sense, and to quote the Lego movie, everything was awesome. How awesome was it? Well, Genesis 2.25 tells us that Adam and his wife, the two workers, were both naked. Now, if you ever work from home and you enjoy not having to dress up, not having to get into a suit, you can wear your pajamas if you like. Well, this was one step up if you like. They could go to work naked and they felt no Shame. This is a potent picture of complete transparency before God, before one another. They had nothing to, to hide. They could completely be themselves. And despite that, they could be completely transparent and completely free of shame. Yes, everything at this point in time was awesome. This reminds me of a Tim Keller quote, this idea of being able to go into the workplace, to go into the world, to go into our relationships with nothing to hide, completely transparent, naked if you like, and without shame. Tim Keller said that to be loved, but not known, is comforting, but it's superficial. People say they love me, but they don't actually know me. Well, it's nice, but that's actually that's superficial. To be known... And because we are known to be not loved, well, that's our greatest fear. 
We've been talking about fear this morning. But, like Adam and Eve in the garden, to be fully known and truly loved, well, that's a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. At this point in the story, everything is awesome. But even from the answers that came back this morning, work is a mixture. There are aspects of it that are fabulous and fulfilling. There are also aspects of it that are frustrating and fruitless. That's one of the things I love about the Bible, is the Bible, unlike I would argue any other either religious system or philosophical system in the world, the Bible gives us a lens, it gives us a paradigm that reflects reality and through which we can view reality unlike any other. One of my favorite quotes, my kids are starting to quote it back to me now and that's a good sign. C.S. Lewis said this, he said, I believe in Christianity like I believe in the sun, not because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Christianity is not to be in some compartment. Sunday morning, 9 till 11, and I see it. No, no, no. Christianity is to become the lens through which we see absolutely everything else. Here's why this is important. It's important because I would wager that if you had said to the average Christian 100 years ago, 200 years ago, so 1824, if you had said to the average Christian, what would it take to transform the continent of Africa? They might have answered if we could get all Africa or the majority into churches, wouldn't that be awesome? If the majority of Africans were in church on a Sunday morning, everything would be awesome. Well, guess what? 200 years later, we have plenty of Africans in the church. And guess what? Everything is not awesome. Far from it. Why? Because somehow we can be in church on a Sunday morning and experience heaven on earth. But then we step outside And it can sometimes feel like hell on earth. Why is that? It's because as Christians, we fail to see everything through the lens of our Christian faith. That's why some of you have letters after your name. And when we listen to you in the workplace... You are quoting figures, you've got facts, and you've memorized this, and you can interpret that. But if we ask you to explain your Christian faith, somehow there's a mismatch. It's like we've got this 35-year-old understanding of our profession, but our spiritual understanding bottoms out at about age eight. And if we say to you, but how does your Christian faith inform and transform what happens on a Monday morning? Friends, we have work to do. And that's why we're doing this series on faith and work. 
And so we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 2, everything is awesome, but things go wrong. There's a serpent in the garden. When the woman saw, the serpent talks to the woman and says, did God really say? She says, well, God said that we um, shouldn't eat off the tree in the middle of the garden. We shouldn't even touch it or we will die. And in Genesis 3 verse 6, this fruit in the middle of the garden. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food. Can you say good for food? And pleasing To the eye, can you say, "Mm mm-mm, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, by the way, and he ate it. I love that the scriptures give us insight through this verse into three of the most powerful motivators in human nature, three of the most powerful motivators in the workplace. I loved when Bruno said that, they taught you that in economics, that the two most powerful motivators are fear and greed. Eve has three motivators before doing the worst thing ever done on planet Earth. What were her motivators? Well, number one, she saw that it was good for food. This talks about meeting a material need. Now, that's, that's not a bad desire. God made us with a desire for food. God made us with a desire for good food. But when those orders, when those desires become disordered, they become avenues through which evil and sin can come into our hearts. Sometimes people will do things in the workplace and their justification is, well, a man's got to eat. It's a version of good for food. Some of us are thinking of changing job or thinking of staying in a job, and our primary consideration is how much will I earn? Why? Because I got to put food on the table. My spouse says I've got to bring home the bacon. It's not a completely bad motivator. In fact, the Bible says if a man won't work, he will not eat. But it can become disordered. It was good for food. It was pleasing to the eye. How often is this a motivator? I could do this in the workplace. I could take that job, but how will it look on my CV? How will I look driving the car that they provide? And then lastly, Eve saw that this was desirable for gaining wisdom. Some of you have letters after your name, which talk about the knowledge and wisdom that you've attained. And actually, in the medical field, knowledge and wisdom can become an idol. They can become how you gauge your worth in any setting, is how much do I know, and equally importantly, do I know more than the person next to me? And in the medical field, this can then actually become your identity because this happens in other fields, but not many. But in the medical field, people attach a title to your name. And before you even finish medical school, you are doctor so-and-so. And And that just makes it harder to unravel, unwrap, this is who I am, 
and this is what I do. Because if I'm not doing well, then I am not well. Desirable for gaining wisdom. Great temptation in the medical profession. So when someone walks into your consultation room and they say, I've been to so many doctors, I was told now I must come to you. The temptation is to say, all those other guys are idiots. <laughs> is that what they did? <laughs> Can't believe it. You're so lucky you're now sitting in front of me. There's a desire to gain wisdom, pleasing to the eye, good for food. 1 John 2.16 sums up these three desires. They're a theme through Scripture, good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining knowledge. In 1 John 2.16, John talks about the lust of the flesh that's good for food and these material needs and appetites, the lust of the eyes that it was pleasing to the eye, and the pride of life that speaks to the desirable, the, the desire for gaining wisdom. And it comes not from the Father, but from the world. Well, then the eyes of both of them were opened when they ate the fruit, Genesis 3, verse 7. And they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? Adam answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. This to me is one of the most profound stories in the Bible. And the big idea of this morning is this. Every problem that you and I face has its roots in this story. And if every problem that you and I face has its roots in this story, then the answer to every problem that you and I face has its roots in this story. Do you understand? And apart from this story and its solution, there can be no solution. We see things happening in this story. The moment that mankind rebels against our creator, we see things happening inside ourselves, inside Adam and Eve. We see things happening in their relationship with God, in their relationships with one another, and in their relationships to their workplace. What happens? Well, the story started, they were naked and they were not ashamed, but then the eyes are opened and they see that we are naked and they became ashamed. And so shame comes in. And it still follows us every single day, including relating to work. What work do you do or what work do you not do? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not formally employed right now. And sometimes there can be a shame attached to that. Or I do this kind of job, or I did this as part of my job. There can be a shame attached to that. There can be a shame motivator in the workplace. 
Unwritten rules, don't go home before your boss. Anyone experience that? Why? Because it's a shameful thing to do. Who told you that? Guilt rushes in, they hide. They, it, 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 it comes in at this point in the story. Last week's interview, Daniela, when we asked about being a, 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 a mother of a young child and working, she told us about the mom guilt. And it's been described as, you're at home with your child, but you're thinking about what you have left at work, and you feel guilty. And then when you're at work and you're doing work, you're thinking about the child you've left at home, and you feel guilty. Guilt rushed in at this point in time. Fear rushed in at this point in time. And I was so encouraged to hear that word about fear this morning. Adam and Eve, they hide from God. God says to him, what happened? He says, I, 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 I knew I was naked. We knew that we were, we were naked, and so we were afraid, and so we hid. And one of the most powerful motivators in the workplace is fear. Fear of failure, which leads us to overwork. Fear of man, fear of people. Some of you have clients or, or uh, 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 people above you in the workplace and you are fearful of them. And then they hide from God. And this, I would say, is the beginning of the secular sacred divide, this, this divide between um, us and who we are and what we do and the God who made us. And Adam and Eve, they had enjoyed fellowship with God, but then they stepped out of that fellowship. They wanted to hide from God. And friends, as Christians, we can do that. We can do that in this day and age. We can live lives where we're like, do you know what? On a Sunday, God, I love you. I'm with you. I'm in your presence. But come Monday, it's like a whole area of our lives, 40, 50, 60 hours a week, is hidden from God. We've got to talk about how we bring that back to God, and we, we invite God into our workplaces. It reminds me of the Men in Black song by Will Smith. You want me to sing it? Yes. Come back for the 11 a.m. <laughs> but there's a line where he says, because uh, we see things that you need not see, and we be places that you need not be. And they're saying, look, we've got to operate behind the scenes. There are things that we need to do that you, you don't even want to know about. Sometimes we can have a similar attitude in the workplaces. Do you know what? I've, I've, I've got to do things that you don't want to know about. And we hide those areas from God and from one another. Such a good story. Verse 11, God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you to not eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the man, what, to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. What's the fruit of the fall? Fruit number one is blame shifting. God steps on the scene. Who's going to take responsibility here? Adam. No, it's Eve. Eve. No, it's serpent. Blame shifts from the man to the woman. Adam says, the woman you gave me. 
His tune has changed in the course of one chapter. Genesis 2, he says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, whoa, man, because she was taken out of man. His tune has changed. And the woman shifts blame to the serpent. No one's willing to take responsibility. And friends, it's the same in our workplaces. It's the same in our world. If you want to excel in the workplace, one of the best things you can do is take responsibility that no one else is going to take. I just love that uh, Thierry and, and, and Kamau, they, 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 they looked at a problem in Africa, unemployment. And both of them could have said, that, that's not my mess, not my responsibility. Everyone else should have just made better choices. But there's a taking of responsibility for the next generation. I love that. And by nature, friends, as human beings, we are blame shifters. How we blame shifters, well, I'll put it to you this way. There's a guy called G.K. Chesterton. I don't know how true the story is, but the story goes that uh, someone wrote in one of the newspapers, because you could write to newspapers in those days, and they said, someone asked the rhetorical question, what is wrong with this world? G.K. Chesterton wrote back in replies or letters to the editor. He said, dear sir, comma, I am, full stop, G.K. Chesterton. He said, if there's a problem in this world, I'm pretty sure I'm part of it. Golfer called Jack Parr said that um, his life has been one long obstacle course with himself as the chief obstacle. D.L. Moody said that I've had more trouble with D.L. Moody than any other man alive. And when I said to you, what is the number one problem in your workplace? How many of you would have answered? I am. The closest we got was people. The inference being other people. The inference being everyone else except me. But we do this as a race. We look around at the world and we say, what is wrong with Africa? What is wrong with the world? And you know our answer is, there must be something wrong with the God who made it. We're great at shifting blame. Because we look at the brokenness and the fallenness and the poverty and the sin and the sickness in Africa and in this world and we say, Man, what kind of God would allow that? No, 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 no. That, that is twisted reasoning. Because we're in, we spoke about creation. We're in fall. We're coming back to redemption. The story of the universe is on a U trajectory. And you and I are at the bottom of the U. Where are we right now? We are in Genesis 3 and following because of our sin. But if you want to know what God is like, you don't look around at the world as it is today. You look at how he made it in the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2 before we messed it up, and you look at how he will remake it in Revelation 21 and 22. Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22, those tell you about the character and the goodness of God. Everything in between tells you and I about how bad we are. Do you understand? But our tendency is to shift the blame back to God. You can tell some of your non-believing friends about that. 
And so as a rule in life, he should probably take a little bit more of the blame than you think he should and a little bit less of the credit than you think he should. And competition comes in. Adam and Eve and the woman's desire is to, uh, um, will be for her husband, and that means to master uh, or to rule over him. And then, but it says that he, the man's going to rule over you in a domineering way. That wasn't part of God's design. That is part of the fall. Our fault, not his. And so we end up competing with one another across the um, gender barrier. We end up competing with one another in the workplace. We end up competing with one another, coming from different nations and different cultures. But team, we weren't designed, we weren't created to compete with one another. We were created and designed to complete one another. Where you are weak, I can be strong with you. And where I am weak, you can be strong with me. But it all goes south. Woman's work, her labor literally becomes painful. Man's toil becomes painful. The ground produces thorns and thistles. Everything in our work is tainted by the fall. First and foremost, us. And I love what we heard in the interview, that the most powerful way to bring transformation into the workplace is to start with ourselves. How do we do that? Well, you won't be surprised if you've been attending this church for a while that it starts with the good news. And there is good news in this, in this chapter, Genesis 3.15. God says, after this catastrophe, he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. It's fascinating. Says to the serpent, I'm going to put enmity between your seed And her seed, that's mind-blowing because in human reproduction, it's usually the man, the male, who provides the seed for generations to come. But she talks about the seed of the woman. And this is the first announcement of the good news, picked up by Matthew in Matthew chapter 1, who said that the virgin, the woman, will conceive and give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Paul picks this up in Galatians 4 verse 4. He says, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, seed of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Friends, the seed of the woman is Jesus. And the scripture says that there will be conflict between the seed of the woman, that's Jesus, and the serpent. And the good news is that it's the same Hebrew word crushed, that the heel of the seed of the woman, Jesus, would be crushed. But he would in turn crush, not the heel, but the head of the servant. Would you rather have a crushed heel or a crushed head? And that word crushed is important because when Jesus came, 
He died on a cross and his body was crushed for you and I. But on that same cross, in that same moment, as his body was crushed, he was at that same time crushing the head of the serpent and undoing what happened in Genesis chapter 3, verse 3. You see, we came here saying that we're declaring war on fear this morning, and one of the greatest motivators in the workplace is fear. One of the great fruits of the fall is fear. But the Bible says that greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. That's the seed of the woman. And the scripture also says that that perfect love casts out fear. Can you imagine walking into your workplace free of fear tomorrow morning? There's only one way to do that. That's by being secure in the love of the one who died for you on the cross. He came to undo fear. He came to carry away our shame. The man and the woman were naked and they were not ashamed. While Jesus hung on a cross naked, he carried our shame. He took our shame upon himself. Shame that you and I deserve, yes. And now our shame is taken away. Our fear is taken away. Our guilt atoned for by the perfect, spotless sacrifice of the Son of God. When we walk into the workplace, we walk in as transformed people. We're able to take responsibility for us and for our colleagues. Why? Because Jesus took responsibility for us. It wasn't his fault. It wasn't his mess. But he said, I'm going to take that on me. And as his followers, when we walk into the workplace, we're saying, I'm going to take responsibility for this situation right here. Oh, my line manager won't do it. I'll take responsibility for that. And that's how transformation comes. The blame shifting stops because Jesus took all my blame. I don't need to shift blame to anyone else. Friends, when we walk in transformed at a heart level, not just understanding these truths in our heads, but carrying them in our hearts in a way that our hearts are transformed. Everywhere you step, you're going to take the kingdom of God with you in the workplace. And so three very quick practical things. I, I wish I had a whole morning to talk about these things, but I want to bring it in for a landing. Do we understand what the fundamental problem is? And that's shame, fear, guilt in me. Do we understand that there's only one solution for this fundamental problem, and his name is Jesus? And do we understand how we walk in that? Well, we walk in it by three things that we can do practically this week and over the next month. is through prayer, through scripture, and through community. The first up is by being a prayerful people. And I want to challenge us, all of us this week, would you pray for your workplace more consistently than you ever have before? Can you do that for just one week? And one prayer I found helpful in exploring this area of faith and work is a prayer called the Prayer of Examine. Anyone heard of the Prayer of Examine? Um, it's, it's a great thing to do. I think um, 
Uh, it might have been St. Ignatius uh, of uh, Loyola who uh, first developed this or popularized it. But what you do is at the end of the day, you prayerfully reflect back on your workplace. It can take four minutes. And if you Google prayer of examine, E-X-A-M-E-N, yeah, uh, E-X-A-M, examine, exam like a public exam, and then E-N on the end. And uh, there's some stuff on there, but it's basically you just prayerfully reflect over the day. And there are five R's. I may not remember them all right now, but the first one is you just start by relishing the goodness of God in the day so far. And then the second thing is you request God to be with you as you review your day. And then step number three is you just walk through your day very briefly, paying attention to your emotions. When was I happy? Why was I happy? When was I sad? Why was I, I sad? And paying attention to shame, guilt, and fear out of this message. And you just review your day. And then as you ask yourselves, okay, why did I feel that way? What does God think about that? The fourth R is to repent of any sin that God in his grace reveals. And the fifth R is to resolve, hey, tomorrow, with God's help, I want to do differently. Prayer, each of those R's can take 30 seconds to a minute. And that's just one way of inviting God prayerfully into our workspaces. Second thing is scripture. And uh, as we become a people soaked and saturated in scripture, we are better able to discern what is going on. Where is the enemy attacking? What are the solutions? Things went south when Eve got the word of God wrong. And things became right when the second Adam, and his name is Jesus, came. And when the devil came to tempt him, his answer three times in a row was, it is written, it is written, it is written. But the last one I want to talk about is really exciting. And for me, that is community. If we become more prayerful in our workplaces, if we attend to Scripture more in our workplaces, but lastly, if we embrace community, in our workplaces. Remember, we're not here to compete with one another. We're here to complete one another. And so if we could think about, you know what, in my workspace, and I might be a medic, okay, and I'll just try to do a visual representation now, which could go horribly wrong. But if I'm a medic, I could think, you know what, me and Jesus is enough. No, it really isn't. You need support from other believers in your workspace. And so here's what I do in the church, in my life group, whatever. I say, hey, any other doctors out there in the room? Are there, and that's a real question. Are there any other doctors? Bethel? Okay, come on up. Any other doctors? Great. No, this is... Would you like to come up and finish this message for me? I, you're welcome to... It's not a competition. We complete one another. Thank you for completing me, Team Anderson. Was it Sean? <laughs> Have you guys been listening? No, this is to illustrate the point because this is what happens. You're like, okay, there are no other surgeons. Okay, are there any other doctors? No other doctors? Okay. Any other healthcare professionals in the room? Yes, please come on up. And I'm capable of naming and shaming just so you know. Come on up, come on up. Give them a hand as they come up. I'm talking about this last application of community. Come here, sweetie pie. Great. 
Thanks, James. I felt insecure when you were taller than me, but that's, I feel so much better. And here's where community comes, is, hey, guys, we're all in the medical space, and so there are things that we understand and challenges we face that these people here might not understand in the same way. Do you understand? And you can do this as a teacher, whatever. And so you say, guys, how about once a quarter, we get together and we pray for one another and we encourage one another. And it's an amazing idea, so they all smile and look very happy with it. Okay? It's community, not competing with one another. We complete one another. But then we add an additional dimension because remember we said that scripture is important. And so there may be things that as healthcare professionals that we understand that no one else understands. But it might be helpful to say, do you know what? This is so complex, this ethical situation, whatever it is. And this is so unique to the Kenyan content that you can't Google and say, oh, what's going to happen? And so we need to develop innovative solutions ourselves. We need to be creative. And some of the best creating we do is as we collaborate. We heard about that last week. But now... I need, we need, people with scriptural insight, maybe beyond our own, that will help us to come up with unique and biblical solutions to this. So, are there any theologically trained people in the room? Great. And then you say, hey, can we have anyone, one of you, Taylor, come on up. And Taylor might come for one of those quarterly meetings, or all of them, and we're brainstorming, okay, how do you deal with this challenge, or how do you deal with NHIF, and okay, that's great, but then maybe we need an economist as well. But in community, we're accessing God-given resources that we have in one another, and through that we are completing one another, and that's part of the solution. Can you imagine if politicians and lawyers and doctors were doing this together with pastors and theologians and searching the scriptures and coming out with God-given solutions for the greatest challenges our nations face. That could be the beginning of the shift. Shall we give our friends here a hand? <laughs> Bethel. Can you stand together? Let's pray. God, we want to thank you for... your word thank you for revealing yourself thank you for speaking to us this morning and God I pray that uh, the work of your word would continue in our hearts through today and as we go home God may the seed that's been planted bear fruit God would you begin even now to speak to us about our motivations. Some of them good, some of them disordered. Good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining knowledge. God, would you begin to show us the brokenness in our own lives where we can take responsibility in the gospel. God, would you show us where we are being motivated by shame or motivating others by shame? Would you show us where we are carrying guilt? Would you show us where actually, if we're honest, we are motivated by fear? 
or where we are using fear to motivate others. And Jesus, in it all, may we see you as the bright and shining and perfect solution. We sung this morning that when we see you, we find strength to face the day. God, right now, Jesus, as we gaze upon your perfection, may we find strength to face the weak. May we find strength to bring innovative transformation that is fueled by the power of your gospel. And Jesus, may you lead us deeper into prayer. May you lead us deeper into scripture. And may you lead us deeper into community. And we pray all of this in your mighty, magnificent name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless you.